From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. Unplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to the Dis Unplugged Disneyland Edition, Episode 529, for the week of November 29th, 2015. I am your host and resident Disney historian for the Dis. Unplugged Michael Bowling. For Disney fans, December is the month we remember the birth of Walt Disney on December 5th, 1901, and regret his passing on December 15th, 1966. It seems fitting that those of us who appreciate Walt Disney look back on his life and legacy. Joining us with a look back at Walt's legacy is author, university professor, and leadership and success coach, Jeff Barnes, the author of The Wisdom of Walt, Leadership Lessons from the Happiest Place on Earth. Jeff, welcome to the Dis Unplugged Disneyland podcast. Hello, Michael, and I am thrilled to be with you tonight. Thank you. Now, we're thrilled to have you because um, I we we met at D23 um, Expo very briefly, but then I got to hear you speak at MouseCon a, a couple of weeks ago and thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. Well, 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 thank you. I um, both events were fabulous. I had a great time at, at D23, and um, I actually spent 14 years in the Bay Area. So any chance I I uh, have to go back to San Francisco or anywhere close to San Francisco. I'm always happy to do that as well. So both D23 and MouseCon were a thrill for me. Great. Now, one of the things that piqued my interest when we got to talking and I read about you, read your book, is, is that you are teaching a university course on the history of Disneyland for credit. So how did this come about? And, of course, all us Disney fans are thinking, oh, this would be an easy A. <laughs> so, um, so can you tell us about the course, how, how it came to be? Sure. I, um, I'm Dean of Academic Services at California Baptist University in Riverside, California, which is in the Inland Empire, about 33 miles from Main Street, USA. And I, um, as part of my faculty or teaching responsibilities, I also teach U.S. history. And um, when I was teaching the second half of U.S. history, being a, a Disney nut and a Disney fan, I naturally think that you cannot lecture on the 1950s without saying something about the opening of, of Disneyland, because it certainly had a huge impact on us as Americans and on us as Californians and a significant impact on, you know, the entertainment and, you know, amusement park industry. And I, I noticed that my, you know, naturally engaged students, you know, peaked up even more when I would give those sort of uh, very basic lectures on the opening of Disneyland in 1955. And then, you know, one afternoon I asked a very critical question. Uh, it was a class with well over 60 students. And I, I just did a quick poll. How many of you have been to Disneyland? And of course, being only 33 miles away, every single hand shot up. But then, Michael, the, the most important question was the follow-up question. I then asked them, well, well, how many of you, because you grew up 
in Southern California were so young the very first time you went to Disneyland, you don't even remember your very first visit. And well over 75% of those same 60 hands went up again. And that's when I realized, because, you know, the park is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. That's when I came to recognize there's an entire generation that has grown up with, A, Disneyland in their backyard. They've never known a world without it. But then, B, they've also grown out, grown up without Walt Disney himself. And so I just came to realize that because I believe the park is such a phenomenal uh, source of inspiration and motivation, that, that these students need to, to hear the stories of Walt Disney and the stories of Disneyland itself. And that's sort of where that idea and that dream was born. I think that's interesting because one of the questions I have, because being the Disney historian for the Diz, is that the a lot of I'm I'm able to meet a lot of the people who are still alive who work directly with Walt, and I've always wondered what is the fandom going to be like in about ten years or so when nobody who worked directly with Walt is with us any longer. Yeah. And- it, it- yeah, it, it's sort of interesting. Um, you know, we kind of went through this um, a decade or so ago when we, you know, were talking about World War II and the the so-called greatest generation, and you know, started to recognize that we were losing, you know, that group of people at an alarming rate. And of course, as time you know moves on, you know, the same thing you know happens in future decades and into future generations. And so, you know, with the history of Disneyland class, the very first lecture that I give is the Walt Disney of Disneyland, recognizing that, you know, today's generation and today's students know very, very, very little uh, about him. And and most importantly, from my perspective, they have no idea that he wasn't born successful. They have no idea that he had a difficult childhood. They had no idea that almost no one believed or bought into the idea of Disneyland. And they certainly have no idea that any of his movies ever failed or that Walt ever went bankrupt. And so, again, he, he provides, at least for me, that ultimate source of inspiration and motivation, you know, to, to go after our dreams with the highest level of courage and confidence possible. Now, will this class ever be offered online? <laughs> you know, Michael, <laughs> I, I get that question almost every day. Uh-huh. And uh, I teach courses both uh, face-to-face in the classroom and online. And that is definitely one of the projects in the queue. Now, I have to be honest, it's, it's, the, the queue is getting long, longer with each passing day. But, yes, the course will be offered online. Um, I, I can't tell you when, but we're, we're going to develop it in an online format some way, somehow. Oh, that would be great. I think we'd have a lot of listeners who would sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, when did you first become a Disney fan? Well, I grew up in Florida, interestingly enough, and at the age of 10, went to Walt Disney World in 1974. And, you know, the second I stepped onto Main Street, even in, you know, Florida's version of the Magic Kingdom, I I just sort of instantly knew that this place was different, that this place was special. And so almost overnight, I, I became that kid all the way through high school you know, anytime uh, we were going to, you know, Disney World, whether it was as a family or, you know, high school band trip, Boy Scouts, whatever the case may be, you know, I, I was always the one most looking forward to it. I was always the one, you know, counting down the days. And then, oddly enough, I didn't get to Disneyland, the original, until I was in grad school in 1988. 
And to be honest with you, I hated Disneyland the very first day that I went. I, I thought it was incredibly small. I um, you know, thought it was way overcrowded. It, it happened to be a very hot day in, in August. And you know, the very first attraction we decided to ride when we walked into the park at 11 o'clock on, on a Sunday morning was Star Tours because that was the brand new attraction. And it took us over three hours before you, we had ridden our very first Disneyland attraction. And if you had told me that night I was going to end up falling in love with the place to the point I was going to teach a college course on it, and then ultimately write a book, I, I would have told you that you were absolutely crazy. But then when I was returning with a group of young people a few years later, I, I came to realize I, I had to have missed something uh, because it's obviously a big deal here in California. It obviously was a big enough deal here in the United States that they built an even bigger one in Florida. And of course, by that point, you know, had other parks around the world. And so I started doing the research, the reading and started doing the research. And that's when I came to discover that, that Walt willed Disneyland against all odds and all obstacles out of orange groves in what was then the middle of nowhere, you know, in Anaheim, south of Los Angeles. And, and it was that story, that, that story of success and motivation and inspiration and, and failure and, and moving forward that, that really just connected with me. And so before I knew it, when I would go into the park, I would see Walt's footsteps everywhere and examples of, you know, success and examples of how, you know, we should be living our life around every turn and in almost every land. And so it, it was that story and, and, and that connection that really made me fall in love with the place uh, in, in ways I never could have imagined on that first visit. Yeah, and you know we we hear a lot from um, we we have a Disney World show as well, and we hear from a lot of listeners to that show. Oh, they'd never want to go to Disneyland because it's so small, and we have Disney World and it's so big. And we say, just come on out, and there's an intangible difference that you're going to feel when you come into this park. And just about all of them, once they come into Disneyland, of all of the castle parks, Disneyland then becomes their favorite park. Yeah, there is a certain level of charm and, and quaintness and, and magic that I don't think can be replicated. Uh, part of that is is Walt's uh, you know footsteps and, and imprint. Uh, part of it is the manner in which he genuinely wanted us to experience what it would be like, you know, to step into a story and, and, and live in some sort of storybook. And so everything was built, you know, to that sort of scale, as opposed to trying to figure out, you know, how to deal with the largest and most massive numbers of people you know, possible. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, Disneyland hugs you, Walt Disney mm -hmm. World swallows you. Yes, and I think it was Rolly Crump. I, I think said that. Yeah, I, I generally prefer to be hugged, and and yeah. you know maybe that's just me. Yeah. Now speaking of Walt, in your book, The Wisdom of Walt: Leadership Lessons from the Happiest Place on Earth, you suggest that there's a more meaningful way we can carry on Walt's legacy in our lives than by just visiting the theme parks, seeing Disney films, you know, and filling our homes with Disney collectibles. So in your book, you write that. Walt Disney and Disneyland are the perfect vehicles for challenging ourselves and motivating us to reach our goals. So where do we begin in that process? <laughs> well, I, for me, it begins uh, with that park bench on, on Main Street. And what, what I challenge the reader to do uh, 
is to imagine what it was like to be Walt Disney in the 1940s. And yes, he's already successful and he's already created Mickey Mouse and you know he's a household name by way of his movies in Hollywood. And you know, then on a random Saturday with his young daughters, Diane and Sharon, he's sitting on this park bench at, at Griffith Park and they're riding the mer- the merry-go-round and he's sitting there eating a bag of peanuts and, and all of a sudden he has this idea. Um, you know, there should be a place, a, a place where parents and children can have fun together. And, and it was in that moment that the idea and then ultimately the dream of, of Disneyland was born. And, and from that single thought, I, I believe he changed our world by creating entirely new and different worlds. And, of course, when you go into Disneyland today, you can see that park bench uh, in the Opera House there on, on Main Street, which ironically enough was the very first building built at Disneyland because before it was the Opera House, it was first the lumber mill. And so that's where they milled uh, the lumber for constructing the remainder of the park in 1955. But it's also in the Opera House where we find not only the park bench, but also the great moments with Mr. Lincoln attraction. And it was Lincoln himself who once said, you live the life you think about. And Walt Disney had an idea, and I think all of us have ideas. All of us have these nagging thoughts. All of us have these crazy dreams. Walt had the courage to pursue his, and I think our world would be a lot better off if if many more of us had that same level of encouragement uh, to pursue those crazy ideas, those nagging thoughts, and those dreams that no one else wants to believe in. Yeah, I agree. Now, I like there was a line in your book that I I really could have, I liked, where you write that the first step step to success is to do exactly what Walt did, nothing. And I imagine everybody's thinking, nothing, I do that every day. So so I should be climbing high on that ladder to success. So there there has to be a little more to this. (laughs) Well, there is. Um, And and when I say doing nothing, what I'm really talking about is giving yourself the chance to, to, to have your ideas take root, really give your, 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 yourself a chance to stop and, and dream for a little bit, you know, whether it's, you know, for an hour on the weekend or, you know, when you, you know, trying to relax on vacation and, and just trusting that, you know, your, your brain is going to give you the ideas that you need to push forward and to make your life better and then, you know, hopefully the world better uh, as well. And so, yeah, you know, Walt's sitting on that park bench and he has this, you know, crazy idea. You know, there should be a place where parents and, and children have fun, you know, together. Um, but, of course, at some point he had to take action. And as he began to take action, you know, what began as a single thought, what, you know, ultimately became a dream you know, would morph eventually into something that was way bigger than even he could ever imagine. But first, he had to trust his ideas, and he had to trust his thinking. And I think, you know, too many of us, we get so busy and so wrapped up in doing that we don't ever stop and just think and and allow ourselves to dream. That's very true. I think that's especially true with young people today, because they have so much coming at them with technology that they're constantly plugged into something. And I know I'm always telling my class, they have to give themselves quiet time every day. Yes. And, or, you know, they're, they're not going to have time to just be alone with their thoughts. Yeah. I, I actually say this in the book itself. There's a chapter entitled building a berm. 
where I, I used the berm that Walt created at Disneyland for keeping the magic inside the Magic Kingdom and all of the distractions of, of the outside world outside of the park. Uh, I, I actually, you know, challenged the reader, you know, to focus on their ideas and to focus on uh, their dreams. And, and that's going to require some discipline, specifically discipline away from distractions. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, if Walt Disney were sitting on that park bench at Griffith Park in 2015, I don't think he'd be sitting there alone. And I don't think he'd be sitting there alone with his ideas and his dreams and a bag of peanuts. He'd probably be pay, playing Candy Crush on his cell phone. <laughs> and, uh, That's hard to imagine. <laughs> well, well, exactly. And, you know, our world would be significantly less, I believe, mm-hmm. as, as a result. Now, having said that, I mean, I love technology. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, technology has its place. We need to give our ideas and our thinking and our dreams a place as well. Mm-hmm. Now, so now once we have our dream or idea, what can we learn from Walt's life and legacy that will enable us to make our dream a reality? Well, I think, you know, you have to realize the importance and the significance of, of taking action. And, and there's a couple of key points there. First of all, if your dream were easy, somebody else would have already done it by now. So the, the second you have this crazy thought, your inner critic is immediately going to try and take over and tell you why that's just the dumbest thing ever. And if your inner critic doesn't take over, well, then the minute you share it with anyone around you, they're going to try and take over as well. And I go back to to Walt. The last thing his wife Lily wanted was for them to get into the amusement park business. I mean, she said to him, Walt, why in the world do you want to build an amusement park? Those places are are, are filthy and, and, and dirty. And then, you know, he gets to the studio and his lifelong partner and financial backer Roy you know, Roy wanted nothing to do with Disneyland and nothing to do with getting into the amusement park, you know, business either. So, you know, the first thing you're going to have to do is battle your inner critic. And then you're going to have to believe in your idea and believe in your dream strong enough uh, to face those who tell you that it's impossible. And you, again, you, you have to have a level of confidence. Walt, Walt once said, you know, the the secrets to success come down to four C's. And for Walt, those four C's were curiosity, confidence, courage, and consistency. And then he would go on to say that out of the four C's, it was confidence that was most important. And so when Walt came up with this idea of a place where parents and children could have fun together, and as it grew and and morphed into something really special and really different and really magical. And everyone, including his wife and his brother, was coming along and saying, Walt, you're crazy and this is never going to work and you're going to drive us bankrupt. He had enough courage to stand up to his idea and stand behind his dream and keep moving forward. Yeah, I like how, you know, when you're talking about the inner voice that you compared it, uh, it's sort of like... um Disney attractions and films, and just like in Walt's own life, there's a hero and a villain in our inner voice. And you said that in our inner voice resides our true genius, but also is our evil inner critic. And we have to defeat that inner critic just like the villains are defeated in Disney films. Absolutely. And, you know, as I've done multiple presentations on on the book, what I see connecting with the audience again and again is the idea we as human beings we love stories it, stories are why we read books it's why we go to the movies 
It's the way in which Disneyland uses story that sets it apart from any other amusement or any other theme park. We love stories, but in order to have a good story, in order to have a great story, you have to have conflict. And as much as any of us want to live a great story, too often we sort of want to run in the opposite direction when it comes to conflict. And so what I challenge the reader to do is to look at their life and to look at their dream as if it were some great story. And if you have conflict, that's a good sign. Because the, the, the bigger the dragon, the, the, the bigger the conflict, the better the story. You, you, again, just have to have confidence and keep moving forward. Uh, otherwise, your life is boring and no one's ever going to care about your dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because Walt wanted to be remembered um, as a great storyteller. First and foremost. Yeah. And, and I think we all agree that he was. And he shared his story through the films and attractions. And... Because, because, and he made a, he invited us to share the experience. And so, but, and so, as you said in your book, Walt and Disneyland don't just remind us of the importance of great storytelling. Um, they challenge us to live a great story. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, Walt, Walt wanted you to step into the story. And, and part of the whole purpose of Main Street. You know, it wasn't, you know, all of the amusement park operators in the 1950s said he was absolutely nuts, A, for having one entrance in and one entrance out. They, they, they said it would never work. And then, two, you know, this idea that he was going to spend all of this money on landscaping and, and, and theming in an area that had virtually no attractions and thus almost no way to generate real revenue. I mean, they, they just thought it would, you know, he's off his rocker. But, you know, Walt wanted to set up the opening shot to your story or your day at Disneyland. And then once you get to the central hub, you then get to pick your own story based on which direction or which land you go into. And again, you have to remember, this is 1955. And what's new um, out, out in that world is the idea of television. And so there's like three or four channels at best. And so you sort of have to look at the central hub as like the channel dial on a television set. And you can pick, you know, Adventureland, you can pick Frontierland, you can pick Fantasyland, you can pick Tomorrowland. Uh, but Walt's going to set up that opening and closing scene, that opening and closing shot by way of your walk down Man- Main Street as you come into the park and then as you exit on your way out. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting what you said about uh, people like stories. And you said that in your presentation, your book, and just now. And because this, I've taught eighth grade for many, many years. And this year I'm teaching sixth grade. And so it was, it's a huge change. Those two years make an incredible difference. Sure. But so I'm dealing with, I, I had forgotten how squirrely 11 year old boys can be. And so I'm talking to them and yeah, I'm trying to get through to them in class. And some of them, and I'm thinking, dear Lord, give me the eighth graders. And <laughs> and one of one of the young guys says, "Tell us a story. We like stories." And I thought, I I I have to completely change my whole yep. method of how yep. I'm communicating with them. Yep. And the minute I changed everything into storytelling. And how I presented everything was through the unfolding of a story, no matter what the class topic. Now they're tuned in. Yeah. Well, and there's actual neuroscience that says when someone says to us, let me tell you a story, 
our brain reacts and responds to that. We go into a completely different mode. And, uh, you know, we live in the world of so-called big data. Um, story is data with a soul. And that's what we connect with. It's what we remember. And, you know, again, you know, Disneyland tells great stories, but in telling those great stories, I think it's ultimately challenging all of us to then in turn live a great story. Now, have you been to the um, Walt Disney Family Museum? I have. We were there uh, last December, actually, um, as I was doing research for the book. Because mm-hmm. one of the statements we hear Walt saying at the Walt Disney Family Museum is that everyone needs to have a good, hard failure in their life. Um, you know, the bankruptcy of Walt's Kansas City Animation Studio motivated him to move to California and open the Disney Brothers Studio. So Walt never allowed failure to defeat him. And you have several examples in your book showing how Walt turned his failures into successes with the message that we shouldn't be frightened or discouraged by failure. No, we really shouldn't be. And, and I think part of the challenge is, you know, we sort of live in a world where, you know, we try to protect ourselves from everything and it, it's impossible. And so the only thing we can successfully protect ourselves from is success itself when we are too afraid to fail. Um, and, and I don't want to glorify failure. It, uh, it, it stinks. It's awful. It's, it's painful. Um, but it's also where we learn some of life's most important lessons. If Walt had never gone bankrupt, he may not have ever come out to California. If Walt had never lost Oswald the Rabbit, he probably never comes up with Mickey Mouse uh, you know, he had a, a series of, of failures and, and sitbacks throughout his entire life. Uh, more of his movies uh, failed to make money than actually turned a profit. And it wasn't really until, you know, the early to mid-1960s that he really reached that level of success where people actually had confidence that Walt himself knew what it was that he was doing. And then, of course, you know, unfortunately, he passed just a few years after that. So, you know, again, you're going to fail. If you're not failing, you're simply not trying hard enough. It, it is part of life. It's part of the experience. It's part of the journey. And quite frankly, it's part of the recipe for success. So, you know, you, you, you simply have to pick yourself up. You have to keep moving forward. And, you know, Lily's wife once said Walt was never beaten at anything. Yes, he failed, but he was never beaten at anything. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, another important tenet in your book that you took from Walt's life, and I think this relates to that, is that we also have to take responsibility for our mistakes and learn from our mistakes. And I think this is very apropos for some of the things we're hearing in the news lately. And remember that life is not always fair. And because I think younger people right now seem to struggle with the with all these concepts of taking responsibility for mistakes, learning from them, but just knowing, hey, you know what? Sometimes life just isn't fair, and we have to move on for, with that. Yeah, I, I think one of the earliest lessons we need to learn is that life isn't fair. And the sooner we learn that, the, the sooner we can get on really with the rest of our lives. Because if we sit around waiting for life to be fair, um, we're going to be sitting around for a really, really, really long time. 
And again, you're going to fail. You're, you're going to make mistakes. And, you know, the key is learning from them. You know, the key is, is taking responsibility for what you need to take responsibility for and then, and then move on. And even when it comes to Disneyland, uh, you know, Walt was 53 when the park opened and it certainly was his biggest dream ever. And everybody, you know, believed that it was going to fail. And if you go back and you look at the first day, even though we, you know, celebrate it as this, you know, special birthday 60 years later, if you go back and you look at the first day, it was exactly what everyone feared it would be, a, a, a failure. It was much more tragic kingdom than it was magic kingdom. And yet by September, they had had one millionth guest and, you know, attendance was 50% higher than predicted. So, you know, how did they go from what came to be known of as Black Sunday on, on July 17th to, you know, really having it all turned around in just a couple of months. And I believe it, it rests with Walt and his personality and the manner in which he took responsibility uh, for all of the mistakes and all of the ills that were present on opening day. And, you know, what he couldn't take responsibility for, he just let go of and, and, and moved on. So, for example, I mean, is it fair to open up your dream in, in July in Southern California at 2.30 in the afternoon in a 105-degree heat wave that would last for two weeks? Probably not. But what can, what can you do about it? <laughs> there wasn't anything he could do about it except keep moving on. Yeah, and he didn't know there's going to be a plumber's strike and asphalt strike. I mean, all kinds of things. Yeah, gas leak in fantasy him. land, and yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, people counterfeiting, you know, the opening day tickets. Uh, you know, massive backups on you know the freeway. I mean, the the list of failures on opening day is is quite lengthy. But mm-hmm. they learned their lesson. And, and that's why they do soft openings even to uh, this day. And if you go back and you look at how they opened up, uh, you know, Walt Disney World, you know, they, they say, you know, that, you know, Disney World opened on October 1st of 1971. It was really three weeks of soft openings uh, before they fully opened that park. And it was all because they didn't want to repeat the disaster that was Black Sunday in 1955. Right. Yeah. Now, now there's a very creative chapter of your book in which you explain how we can learn from Walt and the Imagineer's use of forced perspective in building Main Street USA and Sleeping Beauty Castle to enable ourselves to live the inverted life. So can you tell our listeners what is the inverted life? Sure. Uh, well, you know, first of all, forced perspective is this idea that uh, you, you can use architecture uh, to, to play tricks on people uh, and and have them think they're seeing one thing when really they're they're standing next to something you know completely different. So for example, again, Walt wanted the park to be this storybook, and the train is built on a five eight scale. If Walt had had his way, the entire park would have been built on a five eight scale. And you know the architects literally had to sit him down and say, Walt, um, that that's not going to work because. You know, these are real sized people and they have to shop and they have to eat and they have to experience these attractions in, in very real ways. And so the solution was to use forced perspective. So, for example, on Main Street, you know, the ground floor, which is, you know, where we will traverse when we go into the park, those are all built anywhere from 90 to 100 percent scale. But then the second story is built to three-quarter scale, and then if there's a third floor, those are typically built to half scale. And all of that makes the park look a little larger than it actually is, 
which gives it that storybook feel that makes it feel so quaint and so charming. Well, what I try to teach our students when it comes to success and life and leadership is life is not what happens to you. We think that it is, but it isn't. Life is not what happens to you. It's how we respond to what happens to you. And Walt once said, happiness is a state of mind. It is just according to the way you look at things. In, in other words, life is all about perspective. And the Imagineers force our perspective when we walk into Disneyland. And I challenge the readers to force their perspective as they live their life and to recognize it's not what happens to you. It's how we respond to what happens to you. And so then in the souvenir stop for that chapter, what I challenge the reader to do is to use the ground floor of their life for gratitude. In other words, um, recognize what you already have and the reasons that exist already for why you should be thankful and why you should be grateful. And then the second story are your dreams and your ideas, your goals and your aspirations, the successes that you're still striving for. And then the third floor is really the smallest floor, and that's where you honestly assess all of the obstacles and barriers and difficulties between where you are and, and the dream that you're still striving for. And the reason why I say that is a, that is the in, inverted life is if we're honest with ourselves, typically we build the ground floor. We spend the majority of our time complaining, whining, and moaning about all of the barriers and all of the obstacles and all of the challenges. And so, again, what I'm trying to do is get the reader to sort of turn that upside down, if you will, and that will enable us, rather than you know reacting but responding, so that we can keep moving forward and make our dreams a reality. Yeah, and you're right. It's human nature to focus more on the negative. And, um, yeah, the inverted life is focusing more on the positive yes. and, and moving forward with them. I really like that. Another, another thing that you mentioned was about, um, you know, that Walt was a visionary. I mean, you, you, in anything you read about him, that's what they say. He was a visionary. And you and you in your book wrote that um, being able to visualize our dreams as Walt did is critical to achieving them. And it reminded me of a wonderful story. Uh, Walt, Walt was sitting on a bench in Disneyland in 1957, looking up at what was known as Holiday Hill with a smile on his face. And I think it was Imagineer Harriet Burns walked up to him and asked, Walt, what are you looking at? And he said, I'm looking at my mountain. <laughs> he, and he said that with a grin. And, well, Harriet said, well, there's no mountain there. But two years later, Walt dedicated his mountain, the Matterhorn bobsleds, on that spot where Holiday Hill had stood. So, so we, as you say, too, we, we have to be able to visualize as Walt did in order to achieve our dreams. They have to become real for us. Yeah, um, and there's a couple of great stories that I think really illustrate that. First of all, Art Linkletter, who, you know, of course, was the opening day broadcaster for the ABC television show on July 17, 1955, um, he was interested in what Walt was up to even before Walt hired him uh, to be the master of ceremonies. And so early in 1954, uh, a few months after construction had started, Walt took him down to Anaheim, and I, I don't believe up to that point Art Linkletter had ever even been to Anaheim. And now he's trekking down there you know, with Walt to see this place called Disneyland, and they pull into this orange grove, and the only thing 
that's there are some trees and some piles of dirt and, and a bulldozer. And, and the second they get out of the car, Walt is pointing to where the railroad is going to be and where Main Street will be and where the Jungle Cruise will run and where, you know, Dumbo the Flying Elephant will soar over Fantasyland. And the entire time, Art Linkletter is sitting there thinking, my poor delusional friend, you are going to build roller coasters and merry-go-rounds out here in the middle of nowhere. You're going to go bankrupt. And yet, standing on that same patch of dirt, Walt could see every bit of it as if it already existed. And then there's another great story when they were dedicating Walt Disney World, the opening of the Magic Kingdom in October of 1971. Um, a, a, a worker commented, you know, it's a really, sh- it's, it's, it's a real shame that Walt didn't live to see this. And then Mike Vance turned around and replied to Walt, he or replied to that worker, he did see it. That's why it's here. And yes. that's the beauty of vision. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a, a story when Walt was still alive. He, he liked to, when they went to Florida, when they were buying the land and all that, he liked to fly low over it. And so in one of the tours, when they were flying over it, um, and he had the, his inner circle that knew about the project with him. And, and he's showing them this land and he's pointing out to them where everything's going to be and all this stuff. And they're all sitting there thinking, this is like the worst place on earth. I mean, all they could see was swampland yeah. and, and everything. And, but, and then as they're looking at this totally befuddled, you know, Walt, Walt then just says with a smile, yes, this is going to work out perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He yeah. really was. Um, he, he was a unique individual that way because he had that vision to see the future uh, to see things tomorrow that no one else could possibly see. And and yet at the same time, he had that touch of history and that touch of nostalgia, you know, that Midwestern turn of the century America. And so the, the manner in which he bridged both during the 20th century is part of what makes him so special and so unique, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And and I always say he, he defined um, childhood for generations. Yep. Because where, where, where would, what would childhood be if we didn't have them? I mean, everything's compared to Disney. Yep. You know, whatever it is. Yep. So. Now, again, in, in re- working towards a goal, reaching a dream, one of the hardest things for me to do is to ask for help. Because <laughs> I want to be independent and, and do it myself. And I'm well, sure others that, do. Pardon me? I said good luck with that. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, and... and when you were talking, but you know, as I'm reading your book and how Walt was an idea man, and I even realized that when he was starting out with his animation studio, and he realized right away there are people that can draw a whole lot better than me, and so he hired them, and then that was true with everything. He had the ideas, but realized in order to get them, he get them done, he had to ask for help. Yeah, Walt was a starter, way way more than he was a a, a finisher. And so, you know, he very much was that vision person and that that idea person, but he wasn't afraid to to build a team. And while he would go on to say that he most wanted to be remembered as a storyteller, what he was most proud of was the actual Disney organization that he had been, you know, successful in creating. And he would go on to say, you know, you can build the most special magical theme park in the world, but it's going to take a team of people 
to, to make it run and to, to make it work. And so, you know, you have to know going in, whatever your dream is, you, you cannot do it alone. There, there, there aren't a lot of lone rangers out there who can actually make that happen. And Walt didn't build Disneyland or Disney World or, or even the Disney Studios by himself. Uh, any more than I wrote The Wisdom of Walt by myself. I mean, yes, I'm the author, but this book would not exist if it weren't for my wife, who was a willing, you know, partner alongside w- with me. It, and it really wouldn't exist, you know, without an editor and without a publisher and without a printer and without a forward by, you know, Garner Holt or Garner Holt Productions. It, it takes an entire team of people to help make that crazy idea, that crazy dream possible. And so you have to be willing to ask people for help on your dream and you have to be willing to trust them that they're alongside you and they have a key part of the process to help make it all real. Excellent. Good. And then what what do you do for the procrastinators? That's a, <laughs> that's another one of mine, my roadblocks well, and probably other people too. It, it, it certainly is my number one challenge and and that's been a, a a lifelong struggle you know Walt himself once said the best way to get something done the the best way to get something done is is to stop talking about it and and start doing and and so my encouragement uh, you know to our listeners and then ultimately to the reader is you know to realize quote unquote tomorrowland and I, I like that play on words there tomorrowland is not your friend. What, what you do today is the best predictor of what you're going to do tomorrow. And so the, the challenge is pick something toward your idea, something toward your dream that you can work on for five minutes today, right now, be, before the end of the evening. Uh, and, and then recognize that over time you can build on those five minutes. Five minutes can become 10 minutes. 10 minutes can become half an hour. And before you know it, momentum sort of just starts taking over and you, you find yourself much further along in, in the journey as opposed to just beating yourself up because you're putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, and you haven't started and you've gone nowhere. And I think what, what might help folks overcome procrastination, too, is you mentioned this early on in the book, is you have to find out what excites you, what are you you're passionate about. And, and pursue that. Yes. And, you know, even I, I think you have to trust your passion. And I, I write about how even though Walt was 53 when he opened Disneyland, I, I think the earliest seeds of it go back to his youngest days and his childhood and the stories of his father, you know, when Elias worked at the you know World's Fair in Chicago in 1893. But you not only have to trust the passion, you also have to trust the process. And so you're going to get started on your dream and it's going to feel crazy and it's going to feel awkward and you don't know everything that you need to know to, to make it happen, but you know you can't really procrastinate on it anymore, so you're just going to start somewhere. And, and that's okay because not only are you trusting your passion, but you're trusting the process that as you move forward, the process is going to reveal itself in terms of what you need to be doing and how you need to be doing it. And the example there is If you go back and you look at the original Herb Ryman map of Disneyland that Walt challenged him to draw in 1953, you see a lot that looks like Disneyland. Disneyland, when it opened in 1955, Disneyland 
even today, the park that, you know, I was visiting just yesterday. And yet at the same time, you also see elements in that drawing that never came to fruition. That map is simply a part of the process. And as they kept moving forward, you know, some of that map would actually get poured into concrete and become, you know, the dream and the actual reality. And other parts would move and shift and morph into something completely different. But none of it would have happened if they hadn't have started doing and moved forward with the process. Yeah. And and another thing that you mentioned is part of the process is patience. And because I, you know, mentioning my sixth graders again, that's one thing that I notice um, they have a little less of than maybe their generation before them. And I think it's because, again, they're just used to getting things faster, information faster, results faster uh, than maybe my generation where we really had to wait for results. Um, but And you point out in your book, visiting Disneyland teaches all of us patience. Yeah, and you know, people are, are, are sort of surprised to find out. I, I'm not really a crowd person, and I absolutely hate to wait in line. And, and the main reason for that is I'm simply not a patient person. My wife, Nikki, you know, has said on more than one occasion, she's never seen me lose my patience because you simply cannot lose what, what you've never had. Um, and so you know, when you go to Disneyland, and, and I don't care how early you get there, and I don't care how good you get at using Fast Passes. You're eventually at some point going to find yourself waiting in line. Uh, Walt waited a long time for his dreams to come true. You know, Walt would stand in line to experience the attractions just like any and every guest would. And there's a real lesson there. You know, success does not happen overnight. You know, we all want instant gratification and, and life simply doesn't work that way. And, and you're right. You know, the generation today you know, they're used to pushing a button and having whatever it is that they want or whatever it is that they desire. And, you know, we're, we're going to have to slow things down a little bit and be willing to wait in line. In other words, be willing to keep moving forward, be patient, and trust that at the end of the line, you know, whatever is waiting for us is that dream and that success that we're striving for. And once we strive for that, and we let's say we reach our dream. Uh, one of the a common thread in my two series I do, sixty years of Disneyland on this show and connecting with Walt, is that Walt Disney was always working on a project. So when he finished one, he usually never looked back at it again, and he went on to the next. And you say we have to do the same in our own lives. We when we've accomplish something we have to ask ourselves what is my impossible next yeah we we don't ever want to become stagnant i i I think as as people we're meant to strive we're we're meant to change we're meant to achieve uh if you go back to you know even even with snow white um you know they poured everything into the world's first you know full-length animated you know movie and like disneyland nobody believed that that would work either and yet after the rave opening premiere at the Carthay Theater, the next day, Walt had already moved on. You know, some of the you know animators instead of the studio uh, employees really wanted to stop and you know sort of revel in their success. And you know, they were really shocked to, to come to the studio the next day. And, you know, Walt was already 
moving on and, you know, plotting, you know, the next course. And he wasn't a big fan of sequels. And I, I think sort of what's been forgotten in his death in December of 1966 is, you know, the dream of Disney World was not to do Disneyland 2.0 mm-hmm. or, or to do another Magic Kingdom in Florida. His real dream was to do Epcot. And, you know, Magic Kingdom was just sort of a, a necessary part of that process in order to get the state of Florida to buy into the, you know, sort of governmental control that he needed to make the entire project happen, but especially, you know, Epcot. So, you know, he once said, as long as there was imagination left in the world, Disneyland would never be finished. And I think that's a good line for all of us to remember. As long as we have imagination, we ourselves, like Disneyland, will never be finished. Yeah, that's very good. I like that. I think it's a good way for us to live our lives. And and it, and it allows us to sort of stay fresh. You know. Well, I, I certainly hope so. And uh, I, uh, you know, spent this past year, you know, writing the wisdom of Walt and then, you know, spent the last, you know, six months, you know, launching the book and working really hard to get it into the hands of as many people uh, as possible. And then this past weekend, you know, I sort of had to, you know, read my own final chapter about always needing the next and, you know, realizing, OK, you wrote a great first book. Time to do a second one. And, uh, you know, as, as much as I don't really want to, per se, I, I know that I need to because that's how we stay fresh and that's how we stay current. So what motivated you to write The Wisdom of Walt? Well, I, I've had this idea probably since that second trip to Disneyland when I had, you know, read the stories and the history of the park and all of the obstacles that Walt faced in, in getting it open and then, you know, just looking around and, you know, seeing the berm and the way in which, you know, it's filled with attractions that tell stories rather than just amusement park rides, you know, just sort of started connecting the dots in terms of, wow, this this place really is a source of inspiration and a source of motivation. It's not just the place where dreams come true, but it's a living, breathing example of how all of us can live our lives in such a way that our own dreams can come true. And and that idea has sort of been germinating around in my life and in my head for about 20 years now, long before the history of Disneyland you know, class. And then as I write about in the book, the day after I gave the very first lecture in that, in that dream course, I, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And, you know, the good news is, you know, we now know that fortunately the tumor was not, you know, cancerous. You know, but I, you know, put off brain surgery so that I could finish teaching the class. And then once I had surgery and, you know, found out it wasn't cancerous and, you know, spent about two months you know, recovering, I did come to that moment where I realized, wow, I'm not going to be around here for forever. And so I've got this great book idea, you know, am I going to do it or or am I not? And so, uh, you know, it really took getting, you know, sick a couple of summers ago for me to get serious not just about the history of Disneyland as a course, but ultimately writing a book for motivating and inspiring all of us to use Disneyland as that vehicle for making our own dreams come true. Yeah, and like we were communicating the other day, I, I just find this format very unique and, and very appealing. Um, you know, it's a combination Disney history book, sort of an introspection and motivational book, Um you know, can, can you talk a little about how you laid it out? Especially, you have some very unique section titles. <laughs> well, Michael, I would love to tell you, you know, that I uh, 
am, am smart enough and, and wise enough to have seen everything that was going to end up in that book outlined before I ever wrote the first word. But it, but it simply didn't happen that way. Uh, I, um, I was motivated enough and inspired enough after, after getting sick that I just made the decision. I, I was going to work on this dream every single day in, until it was completed. And so I committed to uh, 333 words a day. And there's, there's reasons for that that we don't have to get into tonight. But the bottom line is I got up every single day and I wrote 333 words no matter what. And when it first started, I hated it. You know, the idea that it existed in my head for 20 years wasn't what was coming out on paper. Um, but I didn't go back and correct anything. I didn't go back and edit anything. I didn't go back and change anything. I just kept moving forward. And finally, about halfway through, um, things just sort of came together. So, for example, the very first, the very last chapter that I started writing, which is uh, detailing your destiny, which is a middle chapter, oddly enough, was even though it was the very last one that I started writing was the very first one that I completed. And it was in that chapter that I came up with the idea of having a, a souvenir stop, which was, you know, a place for the reader to apply what they've learned to their own life and to their own story. It's also in that chapter where I came up with the idea for the hand stamp story, which was one more Disneyland park story to sort of imprint on our life or on our memory, what that entire chapter was, was all about. And, you know, once I had that first fully complete chapter, I could then go back and look at everything else that I had written and, and sort of follow that format. And everything really just kind of came together in that, in that process. And so, you know, again, when it comes to your dream, just get started. You, you don't know where it's going to go. It's one big adventure. It's, it's one big story. You, you, you can't possibly have it all figured out before you ever begin. But trust that passion. Trust that process. And know that somewhere along the way, things are going to start making sense. Excellent. That's great. Um, I agree. I mean, I'm a I'm a believer <laughs> to reading your book. And uh, like we were talking, it seems to me this book would be perfect for anyone who is in a, in a transitional part of their life. And maybe they're facing a roadblock in their life and they need to look at what what is a goal? What are they going to do? What's their next path? Maybe they're starting a new chapter in their life, like they're graduating from eighth grade in the high school, high school in the college. Co they're graduating from college, moving into a career. Um, and, and this helps them set some goals. Maybe they're in a position of leadership in their family, school, workplace, school group, or even a youth group like scouts, band, sports team. Uh, um, so I think this would be not only a wonderful holiday gift, um, but also for a great graduation gift. Um, you know, even if you're starting your own business or contemplating a career, I think you'd benefit from um, Jeff's book. So, Jeff, how can our listeners get a copy of your book, The Wisdom of Walt? Well, thank you for asking, Michael. Uh, first of all, it is available on Amazon. Uh, you can get the Kindle ebook on Amazon. You can also get the audiobook on Amazon. You can also get the hard copy on Amazon. You can also order it from my own website, thewisdomofwalt.com. 
you can also send me uh, an email, uh, jeff at thewisdomofwalt.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Jeff Barnes, or The Wisdom of Walt also has its own fan page. And then lastly, I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Disneyland. Okay, that's DR Disneyland. Great. And we will have links to all of that in our show notes. And Jeff, you say that we should all be working on the impossible next. So can you tell us what your impossible next is that you're working on? Sure. Well, we are working on a second book. It is entitled Beyond the Wisdom of Walt, More Leadership Lessons uh, from the Happiest Place on Earth. And it's really a, a response uh, to, you know, what readers have shared with me. Um, you know, it's, it, the, the reviews and the reaction to the Wisdom of Walt has really been beyond my wildest imagination and my wildest dreams. And, and the recognition that there are more stories and more lessons from Walt's life, more stories and more lessons uh, from from Disneyland, and and even beyond that, I, I want to tell some of the stories of uh, you know the Imagineers who you know went on and and helped create the parks that we love today. So there'll be more uh, Marty Scalar in there and more you know Tony Baxter. Uh, I want to do uh, more Disney World stuff in Beyond the Wisdom of Walt. Again, using the parks that we love so much, not just as a place to escape but really the place to inspire and motivate us to live the best life possible. And, and what do you consider one of the greatest lessons you've learned from the life and legacy of Walt Disney? I, I, the importance of failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, again, you know, none of us wants to fail. We want to insulate ourselves as much as possible. We want to get it right. We want to get it perfect. And that simply isn't realistic. And, you know, the idea that Walt was never beaten at anything, um, I don't think we should be beaten at anything. You know, we, we need to pick ourselves up. We need to keep moving forward. We need to embrace the idea that our dream needs a hero, and that hero is you, that hero is us, and somebody needs to step up and take the lead, and it requires action. It requires action now. It requires action today. Okay, well, thank you, Jeff. I think that This was a wonderful way to remember Walt's birthday and his passing than to talk about what he truly has left us. Um, You know, this was a good reminder that Walt Disney stood for more than making dreams come true on the screen or in theme parks. Uh, His true legacy was showing us how we can work to make our own personal dreams come true. So thank you for being on the Diz Unplugged Disneyland podcast. And when you have your next book written, I hope you'll be joining us again. Oh, I'd be honored. And that concludes this episode of the Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other episodes this week. Thank you for listening. And I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. <laughs>